Before we begin this week's episode, I would just like to take a minute to thank all of our listeners out there. I thoroughly enjoy seeing the numbers of listeners climb each week, and it would be crazy for me to ignore that. This show wouldn't be worthwhile doing without anyone to listen. A few weeks ago, we had on another podcast host, Speed Hilsenrath, who thanks a different city each week for their continued listenership. I won't go that far, but I definitely understand the importance of thanking all those who make doing this worthwhile. And that is all of you who download, share, comment, and rate, press play each week. So from all of us here at the Jewish Living Podcast, thank you. Now, on with the show. The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. One of the most difficult situations that can ever face a parent is having to raise a child with a disability or a rare and debilitating disease. What can make it even more difficult is having to hide that rare condition from the rest of the world. Unfortunately, many people in the firm world feel the need to do just that out of fear that it could negatively impact their family in the future. This could have other ramifications, including the inability to find others with whom to commiserate. Today on the Jewish Living Podcast, we talk to someone who is trying to reverse that trend. Hi, my name is Ora Lasko. I am a mom, an advocate for my son and other special needs kids, and the fundraising chair for the USP7 Foundation. Ora and I will discuss her son's condition and what she's doing not only to help raise awareness about her son's condition, but genetic diseases in the firm world as a whole. So Ora, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, tell me a little bit about you, about your background. Where, where do you come to us from? I live in Hollywood, Florida with my husband and three very cute kids. Um, we have an eight-year-old and five-year-old daughter and then a two-and-a-half-year-old son. Um, my son has a rare genetic mutation called USP7, and we were on a very, very long journey to figure out what was wrong with him. So why don't we go into that little bit of a journey? I, I, I know we spoke a little bit before the show, so I know a little bit about it, but why don't you tell our audience a little bit about the journey to finding out about USB 7 and if you could tell us what USB 7 is. So from the time Jake was around six months, I would say, or maybe even a little bit earlier than that, he was having a lot of um, developmental delays. He didn't babble, didn't crawl. He had swallowing problems. He had um, a lot of facial characteristics that were sort of dysmorphic. And something didn't seem right. There were just too many things that were wrong for it to just be, you know, a coincidence. Like he couldn't crawl. He couldn't babble. He couldn't swallow. It wasn't just like, oh, well, he's delayed in this area and delayed in that area. I felt as a mom that there was something more going on. So we took him to the pediatrician. And I brought up all, you know, my concerns to them. And they basically said, oh, he's fine. He'll grow out of it. And I said, something's going on. Um, they basically, you know, just told us, you know, do whatever you want. You know, they didn't really push me to go take him to see a doctor. So I decided I was going to do research on my own. And I was going to take him to any specialist I thought was necessary. So we started off with a neurologist. We went to a plastic surgeon about the size of his head, and okay. he said, he's fine. I don't see anything wrong with his head. Um, and then I decided, I think it's time to go see a geneticist. And this geneticist, from 
the very, I guess, moment that we got there and he heard my concerns, he said, I want to go look something up. I'll be right back. So right away in my head, I'm like, something's got to be wrong if he's, you know, going to look something up. And he came back and he asked me a few more questions. And he basically thought that he had a certain syndrome because it, my son was presenting in the same way. Um, but he didn't actually have that syndrome, which we would find out later. Um, and he was basically, he was thrown off by my son and his symptoms. So he ordered one set of genetic testing and it took around three months to get back. Um, it was negative for what he tested for. Then he ordered a second set of genetic testing, negative as well. And then he basically said, go on, live your life, see how he develops. And I said to him, if this was your child, would you take that as an answer? You know, is, would you just say, all right, you know what? I'll wait six months, see if he starts crawling, see if he starts talking. Personally, I couldn't do that. And I felt so deeply in my gut that there was an answer out there that we just didn't get yet. So I refused, you know, to stop there and I wouldn't take no for an answer. So I said, whatever is left to do, you're doing it. And very reluctantly, he decided to do something called whole exome sequencing, which basically spell checks all your genes or all your chromosomes. It took four excruciatingly long months to get back. And he called us and said, you need to come in. And I remember that day we were sitting in the... Um, one of the rooms just waiting for him to come in and I kept saying to my husband something's wrong I'm telling you something's wrong he's gonna give us an answer he's he didn't call us in to tell us that it's nothing and he basically he walked in and he said we figured out what's wrong with your son and it's worse than we thought wow so bedside matter not a thing no okay <laughs> but um I was happy Lisa said we had an answer a part of me was so afraid that he was going to say it was negative which didn't necessarily mean that something wasn't wrong. It could have just meant that something was wrong, that he had some mutation, but it just wasn't discovered yet. So I was happy that at least, you know, he told us he has USB-7. At that point, I think he said there were only around 30-something kids, but my son was the 47th. 47th kid in... In the entire world. In the world. So that an extremely know. rare Yeah. Condition. So they call it an orphan disease. Before we talk about what USB-7 is and the implications are, you, you mm -hmm. mentioned something that I want to just double check. You said that the test went was basically a spell check mm -hmm. on the genes. Can you explain what that means? Okay, well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know too much about this specifically, but basically, I mean, it took four months to get back, which is a very long time. They're literally going through every single one of your genes making sure that there that there's no mutations or deletions of the chromosomes. So with him specifically, he had a mutation, and his was actually called a splice site mutation. And I had to call a researcher in at Harvard to figure out what kind of mutation he actually had because that wasn't explained to us. Oh, wow. And a splice site mutation is even more rare than within, you know, this USB-7 mutation. A splice site mutation is one of the rarer forms of it basically and for the purposes of time i will just tell our audience if you would like to learn more about a splice site mutation you can call your own harvard researcher or google or google it <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's get back to usb7 yeah how does usb7 manifest itself what are the implications for you and your family and your son so it's a neurodevelopmental disorder so it has some you know, health implications, but it's also a lot, has a lot to do with like intellectual development. 
So a lot of, I can basically tell you a lot of symptoms because I see them in my son. Um, one is low muscle tone. Um, and my son actually has, still has low muscle tone. It's something that will be with him for the rest of his life, even with physical therapy. He has to wear ankle braces. He falls very frequently. He's had concussions. Seizures are another one. Severe language delay is actually one of mm. the most um, prominent features out of it. I think 98% of kids with USP7 have a severe language delay. So they don't start talking until three, four years old, sometimes even later than that, or they don't talk at all. Um, and so my son never babbled. So my fear was he's never going to talk. Um, and I actually went to grad school for speech therapy. Wow. So I called up my old professor and she got us into my old grad school and we got a um, communication device for my son to use. But he's still a little bit young and doesn't really understand how to use right. it. So I've been teaching him sign language and he's getting intensive speech therapy. So slowly, slowly he's making progress. Thank God. Um, and then seizures, um, sleep disorder, inability to gain weight, intellectual disability is a big one. And it's actually one of the symptoms that makes me very nervous because there's really no predicting, you know, intellectually what he's going to be like in the future. Right now we have him in the same private school that my kids go to. But my fear is, and I say this to my husband all the time, at what point, you know, are we going to have to take him out of there and put him in a public school? Because Florida doesn't have the resources for a Jewish special needs kid. So we don't have Hass, Kulanu, you know, we don't have any of those programs in Florida, at least not, you know, in Hollywood where we live. And we'd have to send him on a bus, you know, 45 minutes away to a special Jewish program if we wanted to. I'd also um, ask you about the services that Florida allows you to take part of in New York. A lot of these services that you mentioned, at least early development and maybe even after that, are, are pretty much covered. In Florida, same thing? So we have something called early steps, which is basically it's early intervention. Okay. Unfortunately, though, my son was in, you know, he was getting speech therapy twice a week for half an hour and PT twice a week for half an hour and OT, but he needed much more intensive therapy than that. And it just, it wasn't cutting it. Um, so we actually have to pay out of pocket. Oh, wow. For speech therapy, it's extremely expensive, um, but he needed someone who could address, you know, his problems because he's not dealing with a simple delay or an articulation disorder, so it's a lot more complicated. And I wanted to know that, you know, I was giving him the best therapies that, you know, I could possibly get for him, especially while he's so young. I think, you know, it's that's why they call it early intervention because, you know... Because it happens early in one's <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, so basically all the early intervention therapies just weren't enough for him. We still do um, physical therapy through early steps. We have an amazing physical therapist who's from the Hollywood community and we love her. And then as far as after age three, there isn't much. We've got two different scholarships, but you actually have to go to public school. Mm for a year before you can get them. Oh, wow. So you can't so, even just enroll and be yeah, eligible. And it's, there, you have to be there already. Yeah, and there have been many cases of abuse on special needs kids in public schools in Florida. Mm. And I have friends who have personally, their kids have been affected by this, and they're, they have kids who can't talk, um, so they can never come home and you know tell their parents what happened to them, but it was caught on camera. Wow. So that's terrifying for me to think that I might have to send my child to a public school and he might, God forbid, experience something like that and I won't know about it. 
Um, so there's a part of me feels like maybe we should back to, you know, move back to New York because I know we'll get more services here. But at the same time, you know, our quality of life is so much better in Florida that, you know, we're you weighing weigh those pros things. and cons. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a little bit more of that quality of life aspect because mm-hmm. this isn't just about, about your son, Jake. Mm-hmm. There's four other people in this family as well. So let's start with you. Yeah. What have the implications of, of Jake's situation had uh, on you? It's been mentally and emotionally draining. Um, I remember even before we had the diagnosis, I don't know if I should admit this, but every night I, when we were waiting for you know the test results to come in, I would sit on my couch with a glass of wine because I couldn't <laughs> figure out any other way to just you know like switch my brain off and stop Googling because before that, I literally was Googling every single night you know, and I thought my son had this syndrome and that syndrome, and it was awful. And I felt like I was like just spiraling out of control. Right, Google is a tremendous tool, but it can't have that effect. It's awful. I I actually really stopped googling after that because it just it it really like it took so much time away from you know like time that I could have been spending with my kids. I was just googling and worrying, and it was awful. And it took a tremendous toll on me. Um, but something that I actually did for my own mental health, which has really helped me is I started going to support group. And I think it's something that a lot of people are ashamed of. And I think it's also something that a lot of people don't know about. So we have something in Florida called JAFCO. I don't know if you guys, I'm not familiar, um, but they provide services for, um, kids with disabilities. They have, you know, you can drop your kids off there who have special needs so that you can go run errands or go on vacation, <laughs> um, and they have a great support group there. So I go there twice a month. Okay. And I get to talk to, you know, moms of special needs kids. Most of them, their kids have autism, but it's still, you know, I don't personally have any friends who have a child with a rare genetic disease, so I feel like I can't vent, you know, to my friends. They don't understand what I'm going through at all, and I don't think they ever will. And I think they... You know, they don't know what questions to ask me. And at this point, it's, you know, the newness of it has all worn off. So, and people are busy with their own lives. So I don't expect, you know, friends to ask me how I'm holding up. So it's just nice to be able to, you know, I know I'm going to my support group and I can talk about anything and feel however I want and it's accepted. Okay, so that's the mental side of it. Yeah. And... That does sound awful, and I'm glad you have found a a place that you can at least get some sort of a, of, of a relief. Mm-hmm. But what about the day-to-day aspects of your life? How have those changed? It's, I mean, it's become very busy. He, okay. <laughs> he has around seven therapy sessions a week. Um, and it's actually, my husband has had to, you know, stay home from work so that he can, you know, take Jake to therapy or, you know, just to give me some time. Like it's, you know, it's hard to juggle taking him to therapy, you know, cooking dinner, folding laundry, and, you know, giving attention to my two girls as well. And sometimes it just becomes so draining that I can't even think about driving, you know, half an hour to speech therapy. And thank God I have an amazing husband, you know, who's willing to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to come home from work early, 
I'll take him to speech therapy. So it's just, it's become, you know, it's just juggling it all. I have a color-coded schedule on our wall of all the therapies. I stay very organized. I have to carry a planner with me everywhere because we have so many specialist appointments with him as well. Um, so it's really changed, you know, the dynamic of our like daily lives and our family and our our girls also, you know, they don't get the same attention that they used to and they know that there is something wrong with their brother. And so I think they've become very understanding at a very young age of, you know, special needs and sort of giving up things in their life that, you know, they should be getting but aren't getting because we have to devote more time to their brother or we have to spend more money on their brother. So it's changed our lives a lot. Well. Wow. So I want to push a little bit more on mm -hmm. what you just mentioned about the family dynamics. So you have a child that takes up a significant portion of your time. Mm -hmm. You said that your daughters have noticed that there's something different about their brother. Have they noticed that they may not be receiving as much attention as their brother does? Yes. Um, my middle one, who's five, she's sort of still doesn't completely understand what's going on. I did actually sit down with them when we got the diagnosis and tried to explain to them in the most simplistic terms what was wrong with him. My five-year-old didn't really understand at the time. She was four at the time. Um, and my eight-year-old, she's had a much harder time with it because she's, you know, our oldest kid. She was used to getting whatever she wanted and having a lot more time with us. And um, she sees that our lives basically revolve around Jake and his therapies. And she'll say, you know, I want to go out to the movies, you know, and I have to say, well, I can't take you right now because I have to take him to therapy. And I, I feel bad that I feel like they're missing out on so many things in their lives because we just don't physically have the time, you know, to, to take them everywhere. And thank God, you know, they have amazing grandparents, my in-laws who live in Florida, who are extremely, you know, devoted and helpful and really try to make up for, you know, all the time that we can't spend with our kids. So, you know, they'll take my kids out to breakfast or to get a manicure and just make them feel special. But they, my oldest daughter has definitely noticed that something has changed. And she's also, I mean, she basically has become a second mom to him. She knows there's something wrong with him. She, you know, she tries to get him to talk all the time. She tried to teach him sign language at one point. So it's been, you know, it's there has been like a negative aspect to it, but I think it's also, it's made my kids grow up a little bit faster, which is not necessarily a good thing, but it's also given them this sort of patience and understanding of special needs kids that I don't think most kids their age have. Wow, yeah, yeah. That, would, that would definitely do that. I would also want to know a little bit about if you've been able to reach out to other families, other uh, experts in the field of USB-7 and what that's been like. So we have a USB-7 family Facebook page that I actually found out about from our geneticist. Um, when he gave us a diagnosis, he basically said, you know, here's a piece of paper that has, you know, this is the website for USB-7. There was a Facebook group. That was all he knew. I don't think he had ever heard of the syndrome before. And we found this Facebook group. The founder of it was very welcoming. He welcomed me onto the Facebook group. All the other families introduced themselves. 
I felt like it was really like our own little community. You know, I could say, does your child have this symptom or that symptom and know that I was being understood? Or I could complain about, you know, how difficult life was in that moment and knew that those families related to me. And we've really sort of formed a bond. I actually got to meet one of like the founding families of the foundation. I got to meet the mom and that was really life-changing for me, you know, and she has a daughter who is far worse off than my son will ever be, but her positive attitude was so moving and, you know, it showed me that, you know, life goes on even when you have a child with, you know, a rare genetic syndrome um, and then it's all just about, you know, your attitude towards things. All right, and can you tell me a little bit more about the uh, foundation for USB seven that you mentioned? What's what's what is it called? The USB seven foundation is that is it is it that simple? <laughs> it is okay. And you want to tell me a little more about yes. that? So the USB seven foundation is great. Actually, they have an amazing website um, where newly diagnosed patients can come. They can find resources. They have really been working very hard to um, get a researcher on their team to look for a treatment or a cure. We're living, you know, in a day and age where there's so many advances in the medical field and there's, you know, gene therapy now, which is a huge advance. And uh, we actually just did a fundraiser. We've been fundraising ever since we got the diagnosis. We raised $70,000 oh, wow. Yeah, for the foundation this year, which actually went to fully fund a research project. The cost of the project was $200,000. We raised the remaining amount of money that was needed. We raised $40,000 when we first got the diagnosis. We had a walk and walk for USB 7. And basically our entire Hollywood community came out. They donated. They walked with us. Oh, wow. We had t-shirts. It was amazing. And then we just had a fundraiser a few weeks ago, which was absolutely incredible. I was shocked by how many people bought tickets and showed up for us. Um, and we raised $30,000 from that. So we were able to fully fund this research project, which is going to be at St. Jude's and is starting hopefully this month. And we'll be looking at either a treatment or a cure. And there's no guarantee, obviously, that they're going to find something this time around. And if they don't, we're going to fundraise some more and we'll fund another research project. Well, congratulations. That's a major, major win, I guess, for your foundation. It is. You know, everyone says to me all the time I get this, you know, I can't believe what you're doing for your son and how much you're fundraising. And first of all, fundraising is not an easy thing to do. I don't like asking for money. But I always say to other people, if this was your kid, you would do the same thing. You know, I will literally move mountains, do anything for my son to get a cure for him. And someone actually said to me, well, if they find a cure, so you're just going to, you know, change your son's DNA and I don't think they fully understood how difficult it is, you know, to live with a child who you know is going to have challenges and obstacles and throughout their entire lives. And I said, you know, I would never want to change who my son is. He has an amazing personality. But if I could take away the low muscle tone and the inability to speak and the feeding issues, I would do it in a heartbeat. You know, I wouldn't change who he is, but I would change the obstacles that he has to deal with i mean the things that we take for granted the things that our kids can do so easily like go you know run or eat or yell at us my kid can't do that you know he has worked for hours and hours to just learn how to walk 
and he's worked for even more hours to learn how to talk. And just hearing him say mama for the first time was such a big deal because he had never done it, you know, as a six-month-old or an eight-month-old. He said it when he was 23 months old. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't wish any of that on any other parent. And if there's something that we can do to change that, then do it. So let me shift the conversation a little bit to uh, an area you kind of touched on that other people talking to you about it. Now, there's the type of people that don't fully understand what's going on with your family. How do you explain to them when they say something along the lines of, oh, it's not so bad. It's probably just X. And they probably try to diagnose your child for you. And you have to say like, no, that's not, that's not what it is. I actually deal with that almost on a daily basis. I have so many people and it's mostly a lot of my friends who say, but he looks fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with him. And it's hard when you have a child who basically has, you know, an invisible disease because from the outside, it doesn't actually look like there's anything wrong with him. Um, you know, if you don't know about his, you know, facial deformities, you wouldn't notice it unless I pointed it out to you. Or his low muscle tone. You know, if you're not looking at the way he's walking, you might not notice it either, but it's something that I see so clearly compared to other kids. Um, but I really have to sit there and explain to them and tell them that it's, you know, something that affects his brain. I mean, that's what this is. It's neurodevelopmental. But I think that for some people, it's just hard to see, you know, they're looking for the physical, you know, manifestations of it. And if it doesn't look like there's something wrong with him, if he's not in a wheelchair, if he, you know. Right. If there are other, there are other diseases out there that there's a look to it. Right. And those are very easily absorbed by an observer. Yeah. But if there doesn't seem to be anything physically wrong with the individual from the outset, then it's easy, more easy to dismiss it. It is, and it's bothersome to me because, especially when it came to raising money, I had to get sponsors, especially for our fundraiser. And how do you explain a syndrome that sort of looks like nothing to a perfect stranger? You know, because telling them, well, my son can't talk and, you know, he has a hard time walking is not something that really, you know, tugs on the heartstrings, you know, because it's, thank God, it's not a degenerative disease. And... He's not bound to a wheelchair, but it still affects his quality of life. Right. But it's something that if people can't see it, it's hard for them to fully like grasp it. And what about medical providers that aren't familiar with this condition, which seeing as how rare it is, I'm assuming people aren't going to see it. So I have not met a single doctor that we've seen who knows what USP7 is, and he has seen so many specialists. I mean, I can't even count how many specialists, you know, we've been to. And every time I say my son has, you know, this genetic syndrome called USP7, they say, wait, let me Google it. And then they still don't fully, you know, they see what's on Google and they see what's on this one page, you know, the list of symptoms, but they look at him and they say, well, he looks like he's fine. But, you know, unfortunately, he's not fine. Even the medical professionals. Yeah. That. Um, we've been dismissed by a lot of people. I really had to learn how to fight for my child and stick up for him in both, you know, a medical setting, but also in, in just day-to-day -day life and in getting services for him because it's that just goes back to the same thing. If he doesn't look like there's something wrong with him, people aren't as willing to help you. You know, they just, it, they don't feel as bad. So that was the first set of people, the people mm -hmm. that can physically observe Jake. Right. The second set of people are 
maybe people that don't know you that don't see you that don't see Jake. Uh, I know that you're you're obviously active in the foundation. You're obviously mm-hmm. active in terms of setting up fundraisers. I'm assuming you're active on social media about this, and you're very public mm-hmm. about the situation with your son. Do you get people contacting you about maybe going through a similar situation? All the time. I actually, when we first when we first got the diagnosis, I felt like I had to like talk about it, you know, on Facebook because. I'm not the type of person who can keep a secret. I'm terrible at it. So don't ever confide anything in me. I just like, I felt like I was keeping, like I had this huge weight on my shoulders. And my husband is a very private person and he didn't want to tell anyone. But I felt like I just, I couldn't sit here and pretend like my son didn't just get diagnosed, you know, with something that was going to change his life. So I posted about it on Facebook and we had so many people who just told us, you know, we're here for you if you ever need anything. And, you know, can we cook you dinner? Can we, you know, take your kids for a play date? And then from there, I decided that I sort of wanted to document, you know, Jake's daily life. Because I feel like especially in the Jewish community, things like this are sort of, you know, shoved under the rug and people are embarrassed by it. But I felt like this is my son and I'm proud of who he is. And I'm proud of, you know, how hard he's worked, you know, to get to where he is now. And why shouldn't people see that and learn from that and learn that, you know, we should accept kids with special needs for who they are. So I post about him all the time. And if you, for the people that follow me on Instagram, they've seen him go from not being able to crawl to almost running or from not being able to talk to being able to say, I think you can say around five words now. And, you know, I look back all the time I'll scroll through you know to the pictures of where he couldn't do anything and then scroll up to you know where he is now and it's amazing to see that progress and people message me all the time saying first of all you know I'm so impressed that you're so open about this especially you know being in the Jewish community and knowing how judgmental people can be but I never for a second was in, you know, I never thought about what people would say about my son. This is my son. I love him. I think he's adorable. He has the cutest personality and he is who he is, you know, regardless of his circumstances. But most people aren't like that. Most people are judgmental. And I wanted to, you know, show him to the world and say, like, this is the face of a special needs kid. And there are so many other kids, you know, like him out there who are being you know, hidden almost because their parents are so afraid of what other people are going to say. Um, so I had a lot of people who have kids with rare diseases confide in me all the time. I get messages. My son has this rare disease. My daughter has this rare disease. I've never told anybody about it. And now I'm telling you. And I'm honored that people, you know, share that with me and I would never share that with anybody else. But I feel like I'm helping people in a way because they know that they have someone that they can talk to. So I think that's important. I think it's also important, you know, to be more open about special needs within the Jewish community. The more I do these types of shows, I, I've actually had people reach out to me that aren't Jewish. Somehow people find these shows based on the guests that I have. Sometimes they reach a non-Jewish audience and they tell me, you know, you speak about some of these things that you say are are unique to the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. I find that in my community also, 
whatever that community is. Right. So we think we're kind of like, oh, this community that has all these idiosyncrasies, but I'm mm -hmm. sure that people reach out to you from outside of the Jewish community that are also not willing to tell the world that they have this mm -hmm. issue with a child. Is that is that the case? I've had a few people. It's mostly Jewish. It's mostly people. Jewish people, but I'm sure it's not exclusively. No, it's not. Right. Um, but it's just crazy how many people have kids with rare diseases and with especially I think the word like genetic also is a huge not game changer, but it affects the way that people perceive a disease. You know, right. when you say like when I say my son has a genetic mutation, most people say, Oh, well, if he were ever to get married, he could pass that down, you know, to his kid. But my son's syndrome actually is just a spontaneous mutation that can't be passed down. Which is something most people don't know. Right. Just because it's, it's a genetic complication right. doesn't mean that it's hereditary. Right. Like he just has a chromosome that has a mutation to it. And that's the beginning and end of it. Um, it's not something that was passed down from me or my husband. It just happened. Um, and that's the case with almost all of, or all of, you know, the kids who have USP7. But I think that, that, that the word genetic scares people, you know those people off so i'm just going to go against what i just said a minute ago but in our community we do have this stigma of releasing that type of information to the world yeah. you're obviously going against the grain in that regard do you think that our community can benefit from people being more open about it and if so how so i definitely think you know the whole jewish community the whole entire jewish population can benefit from it i think that in this day and age especially, people are so worried about their kids getting married, especially getting married young, you know, like they're so worried about their kid finding a partner and they're not thinking about the here and now. I'm not worried about whether my son is going to get married right now. I'm worried about whether he's going to talk, whether he's going to, you know, go to a regular school. And I, I would never for a second think to be ashamed of who he is and I had so many people who said to me well why would you discuss this so openly why do you want the entire world to know that there's something wrong with your son and I said I don't know how anyone could keep something like this a secret like even if I weren't to go you know publicly talking about it eventually people would realize that my son is different you know when he's not you know talking the same way that other kids are or not walking the same way that other kids are I just I, I don't get why people are so afraid of what other people are going to say. But. So it's kind of a sacrifice the here and now for what may come down 20 years down the road. Yeah, and I actually said to someone, you know, if God willing my son grows up and is normal and can get married, he would have to, you know, disclose that information anyways. It's not something that you can keep a secret. Right. So, you know what? It doesn't define who he is, but it's part of who he is, and it always will be. And, you know, I think the more we talk about it now, the more accepting people will be about it in the future. I would also add in that had you not been so public about it, you probably wouldn't have been able to raise $70,000 no. for the foundation. No, I wouldn't have at all. And there are a lot of families who, you know, don't raise money, whether it's because they don't have, you know, the connections, or I think oftentimes it's because they're too afraid to ask for money or too afraid to publicly talk about what's wrong with their child but i know for a fact a thousand percent if i wouldn't have you know spoken about it i we wouldn't be where we are today i don't think that we would have raised 
anywhere close to $70,000. And I will never for a second regret being, you know, so open about this. And even just getting messages saying, you know, you gave me the knowledge, you know, to go to a geneticist and say, you know what, I think my child needs genetic testing or you gave me the strength to go and tell my friends about my son's or my daughter's condition. That makes me feel like I'm doing, you know, something right in this world, like I'm helping other people. So before I let you plug all of the wonderful websites that you mentioned earlier, um, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, share with us? I think that one of the biggest takeaways from all of this is that we need to stop stigmatizing special needs and, you know, anything surrounding the word genetic or special needs and just be more open and accepting of people's diagnoses and realize the fact that everybody is different and that, you know, I tell myself all the time I would never choose to have, you know, a child with a rare genetic syndrome. But at the same time, you know, he was given to me for a reason and he has really changed my life and the way I view my life. And I appreciate, you know, my life so much more and I don't take small things for granted anymore. And I think it should be an eye opener for other people as well to realize, you know, if you have children who are okay and don't have anything wrong with them, you should thank God for that because so much has to go right to have a child who has nothing wrong with them. So don't look down on people, you know, or kids who have special needs and say, look at them and say, oh, they're weird or there's something wrong with them. They're, you know, bringing something different and unique to this world. And you should just thank God, you know, that you're healthy and you're alive and that your kids are healthy. Yeah. That's wonderful. So let's do that plugging that we mentioned. <laughs> let's do your Instagram account first. Okay. So my Instagram is at Oralasco. So it's O-R-A-H-L-A-S-K-O. And the foundation? So the foundation is USP7.org. I actually have a link in my Instagram bio for our um, fundraising link, I guess, which is still, which will remain open indefinitely. So, you know, if you want to donate, anything, any, literally anything helps. I mean, most of the donations that we've gotten have been less than $20. And Every little bit helps. Ask Bernie. All right. Oralasco, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So I thought about what Ora said, about being more open about conditions facing children, especially in the firm world, and I felt like I wouldn't be taking what my guests say to heart if I didn't discuss the issues my own daughter has been facing. And for that... I invited on a very special guest, one whose voice you may recognize from the opening and closing of each show. My name is Shira Zwerin, and I'm the mom of a daughter with a rare disease. And I would also like to say that you are the wife of the host of the Jewish Living Podcast. That as well. And I am also the mom of a wonderful five and a half year old who is a sibling of a child with a rare disease. And we cannot forget those siblings. That's right. Now, to be fully honest, what our daughter Callie has been going through is Baruch Hashem not on the same level as that of Ora's child, but I do feel like now would be the time to share that story with the world. So Shira, you sat here throughout the interview with Ora Lasko, so I just wanted to get your overall thoughts about what 
Ora said in regards to raising a child with a rare condition? So um, it's funny, or maybe not funny, but it's notable um, that when Ora was talking, even though our respective children have such different diagnoses, I was able to relate with so much of what she said. We have had very similar experiences in terms of other people trying to diagnose our daughter. His right. name is Callie, by the way. And other doctors telling us that there's nothing wrong with her. She just has a virus. Um, she looks fine. Her disease also, like, outwardly, she does not really look like she has anything. And doctors all the time are like, she seems fine. But I know, we know that underneath all of the seeming fine, there is a chronic disease that is just simmering there and hopefully will not come to the surface again, but can actually come to the surface at any time and can be quite serious. So it's hard to pretend that everything's fine when I know that randomly one night in the middle of the night we could wake up and it could not be fine. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the rare disease that our daughter has. <laughs> okay, so Callie has a um, a disease called systemic JIA, also known as systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis, also known as Stills disease when it occurs in adults, but it is the same disease, which is also featured in the movie The Big Sick. Right. I always say that because I feel like people have seen that movie. <laughs> Right, some people, so, a lot of people have seen that movie. I think so it won, they may won have some context um, in the movie. The I forget her name, but the the girl, the main girl character, she has like ankle pain, and then she gets these flu-like symptoms, and she ends up in the hospital with what I can only assume is MAS, macrophage activation syndrome, which is a complication, a severe complication of SJA, where basically you're macrophages I mean not to get too technical but they are a type of white blood cell and they are supposed to like eat the bad bacteria I think but they kind of don't. go crazy well no not that they don't it's that they you're basically the immune system it causes crazy inflammation in organs and it's kind of similar to sepsis I think or um it's called secondary HLH I forgot what HLH stands for but it's okay Anyway, this gets is very technical, but in any case, it's a pretty bad complication and it's something we always have to be watchful for. Um, but anyway, then they, in the movie, they kind of resolve it so easily, even though it's not that easy. They're just like, oh, she has this inflammatory disease. We gave her some anti-inflammatories and now she's fine. But that's not really the case. It takes a lot longer. There are a lot there of could be a different... lot more complications and the disease yeah. can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Yes, the criteria for the disease is that there is arthritis and a high fever for, I think, more than two weeks or six weeks, and one of either a salmon-colored rash or an enlarged spleen or some other criteria. Our daughter does not have the arthritis, at least not as of now. Apparently, it can develop later or never, but she did have the fevers. She had what started as an ear infection and then turned into a never-ending fever, literally. Oh, well, it went, it went on for seven weeks. It went on for seven weeks, during which time we had two ER visits and a four-day hospital stay, and everybody told us 
that she probably just had a virus that apparently gives 104 fever every day for two months. Everybody except for the... The wonderful infectious disease doctor who we saw at Winthrop. His name is Dr. Knorr, and we love him. And he was the first one to really take the situation seriously, and he... He kind of diagnosed her with systemic JA, right? He, right. He kind of diagnosed her, but he also said that he didn't have the medical backing to be able to diagnose her. He was the one who referred us to the rheumatologist. Yeah, he sent us to rheumatology, but he felt pretty confident that's what it was. And we've been seeing a wonderful rheumatologist ever since who has unofficially diagnosed her because of her lack of arthritis, although there are other kids who also don't really have arthritis who do have this disease. So it is strongly suspected, not officially on paper diagnosed, but um, the rheumatologist did tell us that she's she feels pretty sure that that's what it is. So I want to get a little bit into what Aura was talking about in terms of the support that you have found or that we have found with the SJIA community. I know that that's a very important thing to a lot of families with children with rare diseases. So if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I am so thankful that I found them. It took me a while to find them. When Callie was first um, not diagnosed, but going through this and it had been a while, I was Googling and like looking on Facebook for any type of group, support group or anything for kids with chronic disease because I didn't even know what she had yet. And I did join a group, parents of kids with chronic illness, but nobody in that group seemed to have anything similar to what Callie had. And I wasn't really relating to what a lot of a lot of the posts were. Um, I mean, I was in some ways, but then when we when we first heard about systemic JA, which I actually first saw the name in a Google search, (laughs) Before we heard it from the rheumatologist, because I was Googling like... Dr. Google seems really impressive. I was Googling um, rash with a fever, unexplained fever. And like, you know how when you Google symptoms, like on, it'll be like these squares with like, you know, conditions related to these symptoms and systemic JA kept coming up. So then actually when um, Izzo, you were the one who went to that appointment when the rheumatologist said that it's probably systemic JA, that it didn't, she didn't seem like she had any other rheumatological condition. So it was probably that one. I was like familiar with the name, even though I didn't really know what it was because I was like, oh, that kept coming up in the Google search. That's right. When I was on that appointment, I had you on speakerphone and every time the doctor said something, you were like, yeah, and added something else to the... (laughs) Everything (laughs) that I learned from Google. You already know this. Okay, great. Yes. And from also a wonderful website called um, Kids Get Arthritis Too. I learned a lot from that website. Um, But then I eventually did find on Facebook the, I forgot the exact name of the group, but the Systemic JA group, Facebook parent group, Parents of Children with Systemic JA. And the group is run by moms and parents of kids who have more severe forms of this disease. Um, And they, those parents started the Systemic JA Foundation which has done amazing, amazing work in bringing families together, which is important not only for support, emotional support, which is huge, especially in a rare disease that other people really don't understand, but also is so helpful for research purposes because 
when a disease is rare, patients themselves have to connect the dots sometimes. And well, I guess when the patient is two years old, <laughs> the parents have to. Or the parents have to connect the dots. Through the group, it was discovered that there is a wide range of presentation of the disease. Um, right now, there's a lot of discussion and research being put into a subset of patients who have SJA ILD, which is lung disease. And I feel like without the foundation, a lot of those families would not have been brought together. And perhaps that subset of patients, it would have taken much longer for researchers and doctors to realize that there even was this subset of patients. There is also a subset who have liver issues, who have digestive and stomach issues. So it's really, really important for families to come together and learn from each other and discuss what they and their children are going through so that progress can be made faster so to help these kids. So this sounds like another added bonus for being public with the issues that a child might be facing or you if, if it's a, an adult that has these issues might be facing we mentioned earlier that aura uh, was able to raise seven seventy thousand dollars for her foundation and through the facebook group which is called systemic jia parents network through that facebook group you found the sub diagnoses of these things so it's another added bonus about being public about these issues which is uh something that our community definitely can benefit from um, I want you to talk a little bit about an upcoming day at the end of February, which is called Rare Disease Day. Yes. So the last day in February is Rare Disease Day. Which, which this year is February 29th. Yes. I actually just read on the Systemic JA Facebook group that it's always the last day in February. It was started on the leap day because that is a rare day. Right. So it makes sense for it to be Rare Disease Day. But on years where we don't have... February 29th, it is February 28th. So it is Rare Disease Day. And a day like that is so important because I do feel like there are so many families who don't share that their child has a rare disease. And it can be so incredibly lonely, even with the, you know, being part of a community, a Facebook community, which is so important. It still feels very lonely. And I feel like especially within the Jewish community, it feels lonely because if you think about it, the Jewish community itself is so small within the greater population. And then add in the teeny community of people who have a rare disease, finding another Jewish person who can relate to what you're going through is so important. I feel like there are issues that come up that affect the experience of being in a Jewish community and having a rare disease that people who are not part of that, the Jewish community or of both communities of both communities may not realize little things like when Callie was very sick, we, I felt like we couldn't go to Shabbos meals and like there was just a long period of time where it felt kind of lonely. Right. Other things like, you know, how is her life going to be in a Jewish school if she needs to miss a lot of days? And I don't know, it's it's a private school. And Yom I just... Yom and Tovim are different. Uh, Callie's situation started on Purim. We actually had to cancel yeah. our Purim Suda plans because of it, because she had the fever. But yeah, these things are... While Purim is unique to the Jewish community, holidays yeah. aren't. Holidays but aren't. yes, there are 
situations that affect the from community or the Jewish community that don't affect the non-Jewish communities. I think there's the also just a feeling of when we were in the hospital for one of Callie's tests that she had, we were actually in the same, she had gotten a um, bone marrow biopsy done. And when she was, I guess, recovering from the procedure, they had to put her out. So we were in the same area of the hospital where kids get chemotherapy. So High Lifeline was there. Right. And they came over to us and they assumed that... That we were there for the same reason. That we were there, right. And I have to say, like, it was so comforting that they came over because I felt like our SJA world was so separate from the rest of our lives. And the fact that there was this crossover where there was like this Jewish experience happening in conjunction with our medical experience that I felt like it's so hard to explain, but it felt comforting in a way because it felt like I was sharing what we were going through in the part of my life that's like usually part of my life. Right. The Jewish part of my life. I don't mean for this to sound obnoxious in like an insular way of like, I like to hang out with Jews because I don't mean it that way at all. But and, there's a certain aspect of your life that only other from Jews can understand. And there's also just a certain way of feeling like other from Jews are family. Right. There's just like an automatic shared experience. Yeah. And so, so it was like bringing this outside experience inside. It's funny because when... I had a very different reaction when High Lifeline came over. I thought, oh, whoa, this is much more real than I thought originally. And I said to them as we left, I'm like, thank you so much for coming over. Don't take this the wrong way, but I hope to never see you again. And Baruch Hashem, we have not seen them since. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, it's easy. Thank God Callie's doing very well. Um, it's easy to forget, though, that it is a very serious disease. Yes. And especially, I think, because it's not so well known. So like a lot of families talk about how they'll take their kids to the ER and like in the ER, the doctors don't even know what to do with those kids. And they the parents have to bring in like a list of different blood panels that they want them to run in the ER. And some ER doctors won't even do it. They'll like refuse to check certain things that are crucial to check for an SJA kid who's having trouble. One last thing. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to plug the SJIA Foundation's information. Yes. And I cannot, cannot, cannot express enough how important it is to donate to these foundations, whichever rare disease you feel connected to and want to donate to. Obviously, for us, it's SJIA. And for Aura, it's USB 7. Yes. <laughs> um, By the way, full disclosure, Aura is sitting here listening to this part of the conversation yeah. as well. But the reason why it's so important is especially for the rare diseases, is because a lot of people don't know about them and so a lot of people are not donating to them. And in order for our kids to find cures and to find better treatment, these foundations need funding because a lot of the the medical trials, the clinical trials, trials are expensive and, and the medications themselves are expensive and just healthcare is expensive. And these kids are dealing with serious, serious conditions that don't get attention because a lot of the attention tends to go towards the more well-known yes which is which also is so important and so worthwhile but on rare disease day february 29th i urge you to consider one of the more rare conditions whichever one of your choosing if you 
so desire to learn more about or donate to the SJA Foundation, the website is systemicjia.org. I will spell that. S-Y-S-T-E-M-I-C-J-I-A dot org. There is a orange donate button at the top. And I will also add that this episode is going to be airing well before February 29th. So you do not have to wait until February 29th to donate to any of these organizations. You can, but the entire month of February uh, is a push for these rare diseases that culminates on the last day. Right. Shira, thank you so much for joining me, and I will talk to you later. Sounds great. My thanks to Oralasco and my wife Shira Zwirin for joining me this week. As Shira mentioned, Rare Disease Day is February 29th, which actually happens this year. And if you know someone with a rare disease, please do what you can to donate to a charity specializing in that condition. If you don't know anyone with such a condition, or if you are feeling extra generous, please consider donating to either or both of the charities you heard about today. The links to both will be in the show notes and on all of our social media pages. Thank you all for listening. As always, call to The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Sroli Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.